Hello, my magical friends. My name is Ayumi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and you're listening to Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Whether it's your first or 52nd time listening, we welcome you to our space to celebrate magical girls from every corner of the world. Due to the main conversation this week being a little on the long side, I'm going to do my best to keep this intro as brief as I can, but we do have some news and I have some Magical Girl viewings to report on. So here we go. So, first bit of news, if you remember back in episode 8, we talked to one of the creators of Pretty Princess Pomelo, the Magical Girl card game, and their Kickstarter is back, so be sure to check it out. I put a link in the show notes. I was lucky enough to receive a review copy, and I love it. I'm looking forward to playing it with friends in real life once it's safe to do that. Next, Yuki Yuna is a Hero is back. The fourth iteration of this animated series, the Full Bloom chapter, will premiere October 1st. Since this series has continued primarily in light novel form, I'm not sure how much we'll actually be adapting from uh, that and how much is original, but it is exciting to see the UUU team again. Unfortunately, I am not caught up in the series, so I'm not sure I'll be watching but there is a possibility that I have the time to catch up before that airs. If we can manage that, then I will record a watch-along episode for that premiere. For what I'm watching now, as always, on Sunday I watched Tropical Rouge Precure and Kilameki Powers. Also, we got episode 7 of Untitled Magical Girl. This is our first look at the 2000s era Magical Girls, and it was very interesting. Um, and there's also a nod to older decades with that uh, that really intrigued me. I'm not going to go into detail if you haven't watched it yet, but um, feel free to check it out. As with all the new episodes, English subtitles are available on YouTube. I also finished Futariba Precure Splash Star, the third installment of the Precure franchise. So this was actually my first Precure back in the day, the series that caught my attention and taught me about the franchise even existing. But I had never managed to actually finish watching it because, well, frankly, 10th and 11th grade were pretty intense. I'm also really excited to talk about another Magical Girl webcomic I finished reading. Strawberry Seafoam is a completed webtoon about a group of magical mermaids and merboys going to magic school and fighting evil on the side with a trusty dolphin companion. As of this recording, I'm only aware of a few other mermaid magical girl series. It's not a series itself, but in Akaskin Chacha, Marin is a mermaid who elevates her mermaid form with a staff, but also uses that staff for oceanic magic while in human form. Then there's the comic Fushigi Udonai Shoujo Chotodake Maamedo, and that protagonist Mio is a human who takes on various mermaid forms using the marine tarot deck that she receives in the first chapter, and she fights villains under the sea. 
And then, of course, there are the mermaids of Mermaid Melody who transform into human idol forms to fight evil under the sea. One more, which we'll be getting into later. <laughs> but the merfolk of Strawberry Seafoam absolutely never take a human form, and I love that for them. There is a lot of diversity in the cast, and the art is just absolutely stunning, so I highly recommend the series. No notes. But speaking of mermaids, it's time to go to today's topic. So it's been a while since we went deep into the Magical Girl Vault, but that's mostly a matter of guest shortage. It's really difficult to find folks who have watched older series. But one person who revels in going back in time with Magical Girls is Erin Cerise. Erin is the host of her own YouTube channel and also does the podcast Super Idols RPG, which everyone should be listening to if they love Magical Girls. I will also be on that podcast in the future, but there's plenty of time to catch up before that happens. Most notably for this podcast, Erin also has a YouTube series on the history of magical girls called Mahol Profile, discussing every single animated series in order, going all the way from the beginning. I think she is very much like me in having a true fascination with the entire genre as a whole which is part of why it's always so fulfilling to talk to her. So when I asked her what series she'd like to talk about, she was very quick to mention Maho no Mako-chan. So Maho no Mako-chan, or Magical Mako, or if you were in Italy, her name was Ginny, is a Magical Girl series from 1970 to 1971. And it was the third animated series from Toei. And uh, we're going to get into depth about Mako in general uh, in the actual main chat, but what is important to note up top here is that when we talk about these classic magical girls, they often approach bizarre territory, and the series is even more unique because it's the first of the animated series that isn't an adaptation. That becomes important in terms of how it's written and so on. <laughs> this content warning list is also going to be a good little summary of just how wild this show can get. So before we get into the main conversation, I want to give trigger warnings for discussions of anti-black racism, Nazis, animal death, suicide, fictional genocide, and dubious relationships between minors and possible adults. And that relationship meaning it's romantic in nature. So uh, that list is a wild one and really interesting in terms of uh, certain things that people might not think are common to talk about in children's media. Another thing I wanted to mention, so I do briefly touch upon this in the main chat, but this series came out when my mother was about three to four years old. She vaguely remembers watching it, but she doesn't remember watching it as much as some other shows around this time. So it is really fun to think about this series for me personally as also just being a show that my mother was raised on, which is also very important. And also leads me to one other thing I need to warn for, which is the physical abuse of characters, in particular Mako, who is a teenager. 
So we didn't actually get to mention this during the main chat, but after we talked, Erin sent me a comment that she received on YouTube, not for this series, but for another series in this era. This commenter is Japanese, so let me just read out what they wrote. Uh, I was able to reach out to them to find out if they wanted to be cited, so I'm not going to name them. So this is from a few years ago, but still relevant. Growing up in Japan during those days of earliest magical girls anime, Sally-chan, Akko-chan, Mako-chan, Et-chan, I remember parents discussing about this new discipline method apparently imported from the West, most likely America, called Sparta Kyoiku, or Spartan Educating, or Spartan Methods, in the early 1970s, where they were trying to popularize spanking children as good, effective ways to discipline children. Prior to this, it was pretty unthinkable slash unacceptable to even think of spanking a child, since all children under five were supposed to be unpunishable slash infallible, just being treated practically as gods. Have a little laughing emoji here. Echa must have come out just at the height of popularizing this new Western spanking discipline to the general public through all means as acceptable. So I believe, yes, this based on the comments description is probably about Echan specifically, but definitely is also relevant in this series because there is a lot of this in a way that feels very uncomfortable now, but Knowing that this is what my mother grew up with and, you know, her siblings, it starts to put things together as making a lot of sense in terms of, well, how I was raised, honestly. So, yeah, this is good general context. Of course, not just for magical girls, but for Japanese animation in general and, you know, Japanese media and cultural things. So, yeah, just uh, an interesting thing to keep in mind. <laughs> But yeah, with all of those warnings, I really want everyone to understand that, you know, this is a long chat because Aaron and I are both fascinated with this show and really would love more people to check it out. So with that, please enjoy this episode about Maho no Mako-chan with Aaron Cerise. So today we are here to talk about Maho no Makocha, or Mako the Mermaid, or Magical Mako from 1970. I'm very excited for our guest today. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi there. Uh, my name is Erin, sometimes known as Erin Cerise. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm probably most known for uh, making YouTube videos and podcasts. I have a currently on hiatus a YouTube series called Maho Profile, A History of Magical Girls, where the ultimate goal is to do a video on every Magical Girl series in chronological order from the beginning. This is meant to be a years-long project, obviously. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I haven't had time to work on it recently, but I'm hoping to get back to it later this year sometime. My other big project right now is Super Idols RPG, which is an actual play role-playing tabletop podcast about Magical Girl idols. Well, not Magical Girls, Magical People. They're people of all genders <laughs> and it's played using a homebrew setting for the game masks a new generation and it's the story of a high school idol club full of teens that meet for the first time and try to make the most of their powers and get famous 
Yeah, and it's a really great podcast. And also Maho Profile is great. I am looking forward to learning more about especially more historical series that I haven't watched yet. But before we get into that stuff, uh, can you tell us your history with the magical girl genre? Sure. I think I have a fairly conventional starting point for someone of my generation. I I've, I've grew up in the 90s, so of course... One of my first exposures to Magical Girls was uh, Sailor Moon on TV. Um, I'm Canadian, so I watched it on YTV back in the day, um, and it was probably one of my first big anime obsessions in general. As far as other Magical Girls from around that time, I guess Sabrina the Teenage Witch counts, like the ABC sitcom version. Yeah. (laughs) That was also something that I was a big fan of back in the day. Hmm. And as I, I got a little bit older, I became just generally an insufferable anime dweeb (laughs) probably the biggest series to ever make an impact on me was revolutionary girl utena which Mm. people disagree on whether that's a magical girl series or not but i think it is and i think it was very influential regardless Mm. yes definitely (laughs) (laughs) and i eventually moved into more of the like fan subbed anime scene in the early 2000s i watched Cardcaptor Sakura and Tokyo Mew Mew, subtitled through my local anime club. Mm. Magic Users Club was another big one for me, and that's still one of my favorite anime of all time. Mm. (laughs) And then I just generally kept up with a few, like, Magical Girl series throughout the years after that. And I weirdly didn't, like, discover Precure until much more recently, relatively speaking. My first Mm -hmm. Precure that I watched was in, like, 2014, 2015. I started with Yes 5 which I, I'm still very fond of. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Why did you start with that one? I took one of those, like, what Precure should you start with quizzes? And that's the <laughs> one it told me to use. Okay. But I, I did put a little bit more thought into it than that. I thought, well, why did it give me that choice? I guess I like the way this team looks. I like starting near the beginning of things, as is evident by Maho Profile. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to watch just the duo shows because I wanted more characters. So Yes 5 seemed like the best balance of an early precure and a larger team oh that makes sense yeah yeah so how did you get into first just like learning about older magical girls and then eventually actually making and starting my whole profile well i've i've been interested in history of japanese animation for a long time in general i started learning a lot more well actually i guess i had learned some about it as a young child even because i had a wonderful book that my mom picked up for me during my like Sailor Moon heyday, one of those anime encyclopedias. Hmm. <laughs> and a big portion of it was just like a huge listing of every single anime that had ever been released in English at the time. And I would just pour through that like database of anime and be like, oh, what's this? What's this? What's this? Hmm. And some of them were quite old. So of course I did some digging to find out what they were. <laughs> sure. And that just carried forward in time. <laughs> but as far as early Magical Girls specifically, I was mainly inspired by a friend of mine, Vega, who was doing a a YouTube series of her own called The Idols of Anime, where she was going through the idol anime genre one show at a time in chronological order from the beginning. And that setup for a show was exactly my jam. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd love to do something like that. What could I do? Oh, I really love Magical Girls. You could probably get something really good like that out of Magical Girls. So I started doing some initial research and just found it a really interesting area, generally. Yeah, it's definitely very fun. You go really into depth in especially looking at behind the scenes and so on. So it's really, really interesting to get that perspective. (laughs) (laughs) 
but that being said, you came to me with wanting to talk about Mako-chan specifically. So mm-hmm. why did you want to talk about Mako-chan? I've been generally interested in most of the shows that I've covered so far, but I think I was the most curious going into Mako-chan just because, again, in my initial research for Maho Profile, I came across several different lists that people have made over time of like, oh, this is every Magical Girl anime. And there's variation in the later parts of those lists, but the early titles are usually the same. And I was Mm -hmm. curious, like, oh, these are all so consistent. These are always here, but nobody ever talks about them. And I've especially never heard of this one. Why have I never heard about this mermaid show? I'm big into, like, mermaid fiction as well in general. So I I really wanted Mm -hmm. to know, like, well what's this mermaid show I've never heard of? Right. And when I finally watched it, well, (laughs) I certainly got a show. Yeah. (laughs) I think it was probably the most I've been baffled, delighted, and intrigued watching one of these shows so far. Yeah, I could definitely understand that. I I had a very similar experience, I think, just watching it myself. (laughs) It's very fascinating. Like, you know, you can definitely see, especially if you compare it to the two shows that came before it, Sally and Akbo, you can see where they're going with the ideas, but they definitely were trying a lot of new things. I think mostly because, you know, Akko was adapted from a comic and in this time there was an original story. And so you can see that there were a lot of ideas that they were kind of playing with but at the same time there were maybe too many ideas about what they wanted to do with the series Mm -hmm. so it's kind of all over the place just a few too many ingredients in the stew pot yes yes and so it's very fascinating to watch for that reason i think (laughs) yeah and i think like we're gonna talk about the problems of this show god did there's so many problems with this show but it's also just really fascinating to talk about and to watch and just overall, it's pretty ambitious for the time, I think. Mm-hmm. Generally, even if it results in an awkward product, I respect ambitious art for that reason. Yeah, that's definitely uh, something I could understand as well. And there's definitely a lot of things going on that are very uh, fresh and new for sure. Mm-hmm. One thing that's very interesting right away when watching this show in comparison to the earlier shows is just the art style has a big shift. Mm-hmm. There's kind of this interesting thing where there are like two kinds of people in the world of Mako. They're like generically normal looking people. And then they're like very goofy looking people. Very cartoonish. (laughs) Whenever I watch these older shows, I feel like the American animation influence is super strong. And this is one of those examples. But it's not for everyone. It's like for the really goofy looking characters. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, with like very ridiculous silhouettes and proportions and so on. Yeah. (laughs) That's very indicative of one of the largest issues of the show is just the fact that it seems very stretched between two different modes that it wants to be in. Yeah. That like Sally Akko style, like four children Majoko series that they'd done twice before this that was very successful and they probably wanted to stick with. And this more like serious teenage shoujo story with drama and stakes and romance and character development and oh my god yeah and rather than trying to pick one mode they wanted to make the show they just said why not both jpeg <laughs> yeah and i think it's very interesting because yeah mako is the first teenage magical girl yeah she is 15 at the start of the story something that we hear about right away in the first episode which I must mention, if you have watched Disney's Little Mermaid, 
this first episode of Makochan is going to look very familiar. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Suspiciously so. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. People talk about the Kimba Lion King thing, but... Um... <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. Like, you know, obviously that is more talked about because the Lion King is bigger and Kimba is also more well-known because that's a Tezuka product. Mm-hmm. And also the name Kimba versus Simba is very similar. There's like a lot of things that are very suspicious. Yeah. And there's varying accounts of like how accurate that may or may not be and whatever. But yeah, if you watch the first episode of Mako-chan and you've seen The Little Mermaid, you'll go like, hey, hey wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Not just in terms of the actual way that it's animated and like the storyboarding looking very familiar. Uh, of course, this is a contemporary story, so it is set in the early 70s, as opposed to The Little Mermaid from Disney, which is set in a more historical question mark time period. We don't know exactly mm-hmm. when it is. Yeah, Mako, as a mermaid, she has red hair, and she falls in love with this guy, and he looks very similar to Prince Eric. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's got very thick black eyebrows and nice black hair. It's very, very suspiciously close. <laughs> Yeah, and like there's elements of the story and staging as well. Like you've got your sea witch, and she's not as Ursula as Ursula, but like the way her cave is laid out and generally like how she appears in the story. Mm-hmm. Well, I think most people know that uh, the character design of Ursula is was inspired by the drag queen Divine. Mm-hmm. But that being said, her coloring is the same as the sea witch. She has yeah. light purple skin and white hair. Yeah. And she has these, like, sea plants that, like, dissolve people. (laughs) Yeah, it's so wild. Like, everything in that layer of hers is very, very similar. Interestingly, in this story, she is Mako's grandmother, while in the original, original writing uh, script for That Little Mermaid uh, from Disney, Ursula was Triton's sister. Oh, yeah (laughs) i'm also a very big little mermaid fan generally uh and a big fan of mermaid stuff so i was very excited to check out this series as Mm -hmm. well for that reason Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh so there are a lot of interesting similarities just visually between those two but uh also there are a lot of things that are very much um more akin to the original hans christian anderson little mermaid fairy tale in which, you know, it is a very painful process to become a human when you're a mermaid. Yeah, you get that very nice 70s splash of blood when, like, Mako comes up to the beach and her legs appear. Yeah, yeah, it's very intense. There are a lot of things that there weren't really a lot of restrictions on children's entertainment in Japan until the 90s or, like, the late 90s. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so there are going to be a lot of things that are really shocking uh, in this series and... I think about it often because this is from 1970. My mother was three years old when the show came out. And so this is my mother's first magical girl that she can remember. Oh, my. Yeah, it's very interesting (laughs) to uh, to have that context in mind. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. she must be well remembered, though. Like when Toei does make those nostalgic commemorative Majoko collections, Mako does appear in some of them. Yeah. And generally, they like to drop the less popular Majoko characters from those collections. Yeah, it's very interesting because she is popular. Many people believe that the character of Makoto from Sailor Moon, her look is inspired by Mako because when Mako is a human, she has brown hair that she always keeps in a ponytail. I can see that. So like, it's an interesting thing where it just, uh, it feels like she's still in the consciousness, at least a little bit, but 
it's very hard to find the show online. Even in Japan, it's very hard to watch the show.、Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange for me. It's like, it's very easy for me to go watch Sally and Akko. Even like Meg, I can at least watch some episodes online.、Um, but Mako is very hard to find. <laughs> yeah, there is a DVD set out there, it exists, but boy, howdy, is it expensive. Yep, very expensive. So. That's also something that's very interesting about it, I think. It's definitely still in the social consciousness, but yeah. So, that being said, you know, Mako, of course, very clearly inspired by The Little Mermaid by Anderson, but there are also a lot of Japanese folk tale connections to the story. It's still a very Japanese story in a lot of ways. The main one that's very clear is that she goes through a whole big ordeal in episode two before she actually gets to her final place that she stays for the rest of the show. Um, yeah, the, it, organized crime is involved. It's fine. Don't worry about there's it. There's a lot of organized crime in this show, actually. It's very, <laughs> very curious. A lot more crime than I expected going into the、mm-hmm. show.、Uh, it's exactly what I think of when I think of The Little Mermaid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also a lot of like protesting, fighting the power. That's a lot of 70s shows, maybe.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, she adopts the surname Urashima from her new caretaker. An older man whose name is also Urashima, and that's a reference to the folktale of Urashima Taro. I don't know if you're familiar, but just in case for any listeners who are unfamiliar with this fairy tale,、mm-hmm. it's about a man who is a fisherman who rescues a turtle or purchases a turtle. It depends on the story,、uh, how you hear it. There are a lot of versions, of course, it's a very old fairy tale. In any case, the turtle takes him down under the ocean to the Dragon Palace. Which is where、uh, the king of the sea lives. And the princess of the sea there you know, entertains him for a few days. He comes back up, turns out that he's been gone for over 100 years, and he turns into an old man. And it's an interesting, like, very classic fairy tale. Like, it's one of those stories that every kid hears growing up.、Mm-hmm. And at the, at the very least, if you're an anime fan, you probably、um, have seen a version of this if you've seen the movie、uh, Beautiful Dreamer before. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those characters that gets referenced a lot. The setting is Yokohama, but it's not necessarily very clear. I don't, I can't figure out any particular points into like knowing that it is. Oh, Yokohama, yeah, I had no idea what city it was supposed to be because <laughs> obviously I'm not familiar. They only name drop it a handful of times, so it's fine if you missed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is probably something I should mention. I don't speak Japanese fluently.、Um, I have taken. Various classes at points in my life, but it's been a long time since I've taken formal classes. So when I watched this show, raw with no subtitles, mm, there there might have been some nuances that I might have missed in the dialogue. Yes, there definitely are some, and we will talk about. Yeah, so it's a very curious show for a lot of reasons. So, you know, as you mentioned, there's the classic love story, of course. Of course, anyone who has watched The Little Mermaid thinks, well, Maybe it's going to be really simple. Like she meets this guy and they're going to like fall in love or whatever, right? There's no harm, no foul. But they have to make this show, was it 48, 49 episodes? It's a very、yeah. long show. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if they planned how long it would be. Like if it was going to be anything like Sally or Akko, they might have expected it to go for 80 or 100 episodes. Right, exactly. So it's pretty wild. I don't know how, what the original plan was. And I do feel like there are a lot of things. Because of that, like if you think about the pacing of the main plot, it's very, very disjointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, for one thing, our guy, Akira, he is often not around. Sometimes for months, he just is gone.、Mm-hmm. 
that's the other thing is he's definitely an adult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of mm, interesting. Like he might be 18 at the youngest, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's very unclear. He's definitely not in school anymore. So probably 19 or older. Yeah. Unless he's like an emancipated teen, but I doubt it. Probably not. But he has a handful of odd jobs that he does. You know, he basically just takes work wherever he can get it. So he just kind of leaves for very, very long periods of time. And, you know, Mako's just kind of moping about. But sometimes she's also like flirting with other guys. And there's like a guy of the week that she kind of has some flirtations with. It's very, very curious. Mm-hmm. It's very inconsistent, basically. Yeah, because she's a teenage girl. Of course, she needs to be interested in boys generally. Yeah, there's there's a lot of that. Though there are definitely some episodes where there could have been like some things where like, you know, there's an important girl of the week and there could have definitely been some tension there. Could also just be me being very bisexual and just reading it way into things. But like, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's very interesting to see those episodes also. Mm-hmm. Where like, she makes very deep connections with people she barely knows, like all the time. Uh, and so yeah. suddenly hang out with them all the time because they're there for that. Yeah. Well, again, that's common in those um, Majoko series. Again, there yeah. was in Sally and Akko that would have so many of these like, characters of the week that the main character forms this like deep friendship with like we'll definitely see you again whoever you are and they're never seen again after that right yeah so there's definitely a lot of that in this series and the main plot just kind of disappears for a long time also the the magic of this show we we do need to talk about because it is a magical girl series yeah it's also very different i mean it's quite standard for the time i think because she has a magical object she herself cannot actually do magic and there are some rules to it as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's based on s- sunlight and moonlight, generally. Stronger when in direct light. Right. So she has a magic necklace that she gets from her father. Though her father, the Dragon King, who clearly is like also a very powerful like magic user in his own right, he constantly says that like you know he's not going to help her. She has just this magic to use. But he appears all the time to get her out of situations so that's so it's also very funny it's very inconsistent basically the rules and the different things that she has to do yeah yeah <laughs> like this would be like the disney little mermaid movie if triton were constantly popping up during ariel's like three days with eric <laughs> yeah asking how things are going exactly and just by the way for anyone who's wondering he does not look anything like king triton that is one thing where they did veer off from the character design <laughs> yeah yeah because mako's dad is like basically just a guy with a robe he's not even a merman he has feet yeah yeah he's a dragon king so he can turn into a dragon which is pretty cool yeah that's rad honestly. Yeah. <laughs> also her, her mother who is never named she's just mom um, oh yeah i keep forgetting that she's even there she's so there so rarely yeah she's very very much not present i think she only appears in like two episodes yeah i think she is voiced by the person who voiced sally though from sally the witch oh that's interesting i did not know that i'm famously very bad about keeping track about staff and stuff like that though. that's okay <laughs> but yeah so like her mother only appears like twice and she doesn't have you can't see if she has feet like she's just in a very long dress so mm-hmm. <laughs> her father does show up a lot usually when he's on land he's wearing like this blue suit there's a very funny episode where he needs to disguise himself so he just 
grows out his beard and wears sunglasses and he's like <laughs> perfect <laughs> yeah. no one can know it's me he's always doing stuff to like interrupt or interfere with mako's shenanigans mm-hmm. and she's also constantly trying to use her magic for not good things which is really <laughs> wild <laughs> and much like the older shows there are a lot of episodes where like they don't really use the magic at all so it's a very, very curious Magical Girl series for that. Yeah, it kind of l- feels like they just kind of forget that Mako has magic sometimes. Yeah. Because there are some situations where it might come in handy, like when a car is like dangling on the edge of a cliff and like yeah. Mako could maybe do something about that. Right. That was Tomiko in the car, so maybe she wasn't thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, since I just mentioned her, why don't we talk about the different people at Mako's school? Yeah. (laughs) At the start of the series, we would assume since she is 15 that she would be attending junior high school, maybe her last year of junior high school. So her school is one without uniforms, which actually does come up in one episode. So everyone is kind of dressed like however they want. So some characters actually do wear a uniform of some school that's not their school and others (laughs) just wear kind of whatever. And just like any cartoon in the day, everyone just wearing the same costume all the time, basically. <laughs> but mm-hmm. so most of the characters in her school are not really actually distinct characters. So the only ones that we really have are her best friend, Haruko, who is very much akin to the best friend type of the previous shows in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. There's uh, Bancho, and Bancho is not his name as a title. Um, but yeah, I, I think I didn't catch what his actual name is if they ever say it. I think. Oh, yeah, that's right. Even the teacher usually calls him Bancho, but his name is uh, Matsubashi. We don't know his first name. Uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, so Bancho is just a title. It- it's a fairly common archetype again in shows of this era. It seems like there's one in yes. a lot of these shows. Even in this show, they meet other Banchos at some point. So Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and this one is even voiced by the same person who voiced that character in Akko-chan. Yes, exactly. So... One thing that's interesting that is different about the character in Akko-chan is that Bancho is definitely on the goofy side of the characters, right? So Mako is very much like the standard, definitely supposed to be attractive character. So is Akira. So is her father. But a lot of the other characters, especially in her school, are made to be very goofy. And Bancho is one of those characters. So he, mm-hmm. yeah, he's definitely got a very different silhouette. He's also madly in love with Mako from the day that they meet. It's a common running gag that he like, loves to do anything to try to get her attention, but also is often at odds with her because he is a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting like comparison to other characters of that type just because like he can't really bully her quite as directly as some other characters like him will do just because he has that crush on her, but like he also needs to fulfill that character archetype. Yeah, it's very interesting because he does sometimes say very terrible things to her. But I think by the end, we kind of understand that he he's actually a big softy. So <laughs> yeah, he's he's fairly endearing throughout the series. Generally, he's not a perfect character, but he he's definitely become a favorite character yeah. for me as well. And I'll definitely say I'll, I'll take him over like some other Bancho type characters I've encountered in these early shows. Like <laughs> Boss in Miracle Girl Limit Chan is famously one of the ones I've disliked the most. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I still have not watched that show yet, so I have to make my own uh, decision. Uh, oh, get part. ready for the Boss Time Boss Show featuring Boss and not Limit Chan. <laughs> oh, dear. So, yeah, so there's Bancho. He also has his own. Interestingly, 
there isn't really a group of delinquents. He only has one lackey, basically, his Senkichi, mm-hmm. who yeah. is strangely balding and doesn't really do anything of his own volition. He's just always trying to do things to be cool for Bancho, basically. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a fun little voice, though. Like, he's like he's just a little guy. He's, he's one of those kinds of guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In just a little birthday voice. <laughs> he's got that kind of energy. Another important character is their teacher, um, Dabagon Sensei. So Mr. Dabagon, he is, well, his name is a reference to Hibagon, which is the Japanese uh, Yeti or Bigfoot that was just starting to become popular in the early 70s. Um, like sightings were first starting of that creature at that time. So it was like big news, <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. It's a hot topic. So yeah, he's just this like big, friendly, goofy looking guy again, like another goofy character but he is a very interesting teacher he, i think he's a very good teacher he's trying to do his job but he also cares about his students so yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah he didn't make a big impression on me but he also didn't make a bad impression on me so <laughs> yeah that's good <laughs> then finally the other i guess really important character to keep in mind is tomiko who is our kind of rival character Though, to be honest, this is a, one of those cases where she feels like she's in a rivalry with Mako, but Mako doesn't really think about her that way, or maybe not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but she is like a very rich girl at school. Her mother is a major donor to the school, which is very interesting. There's a lot of kind of suspicious, like, I guess, problems <laughs> with bribery at the school, basically, because of that. <laughs> Yeah, her mother is probably my least favorite character, and she's definitely meant to be a villain, So, uh, but she's very, very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so Tomiko is very interesting because for the most part, she is supposed to be like a, a kind of rival, and she also is super into Akira and actually knew Akira first, so she kind of personally feels like she has dibs on him, but he doesn't really consider her that way at all, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, made very clear in one episode, I think. But mm-hmm. yeah, she's very interesting because like sometimes they're kind of friendly together and they'll like hang out despite everything. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild. I guess it's not terribly uncommon for that character type to sometimes be friendly with the main character, but it feels weird for her considering like how vicious Tomiko can be at other times. Right, yeah. Like Tomiko is very terrible to Mako sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, like, oh gosh, there's so many different storylines to Tomiko that are so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, she's she's really fun to watch, which is why I include her <laughs> on my list of favorite characters. Like, she's a terrible person. Yeah. She's fun to watch the way that type of character is fun to watch. Yes, yes, I would say so. I'm just, like, remembering, like, different little things that she does or, like, things that happen to her. But, like, there's an episode where the story starts off with, like, her and Mako like hanging out together at night with no other friends. And it's like, how did this happen? Like, how did you guys end up hanging out together? Does Tomiko also count as like the first rival type character in a magical girl show? Because Sally and Akko didn't really have any ongoing characters like that. I think she might. Yeah, she. I guess so. I guess she would be the first of those. Yeah, like not the first like magical girl rival, but like the first of that archetype, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that kind of character appears in so many Magical Girl stories up to the present day, I guess. I mean, even Star Twinkle Precure had Sakura Cove. That was definitely the same. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's more of a general shoujo archetype than a specific Magical Girl archetype, but it's still interesting to see it like Mm -hmm. the first instance of it within a Magical Girl show. 
Yes, definitely. And I do think it being a show from, you know, 1970 is also important because I feel like that archetype was appearing a lot in shows of, uh, and also comics of the genre at this point. Yeah, it's it's quite obvious that this show is drawing from like what was becoming like a very like popular trend of comics at the time with the rise of your, your Ryoko Ikeda's and all of your very flowery, very big-eyed shoujo manga creators. Like you don't really see that that big beautiful eye design in the previous shows, whereas mm. like Mako feels very drawn from that mode, and certainly her storylines are. Yeah. There's sometimes where the the sparkles in her eyes are very overdone. I think, but it's yeah. kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, and it's it really looks wild depending on who's the key animator for the episode is too. That's like, also in true in terms of how well they can draw. There are some interesting things going on when they have different uh, key animators, for sure. Yeah, this is not a, a show that stays on model very much. Yeah, yeah. I guess those are all the characters that we wanted to talk about. Um, yeah. Yeah. There are other characters, but they're kind of like one-note characters that aren't very interesting to talk about. Like mm. the two little twin boys that cause trouble. Oh, yes, yes. Taro and Jiro. Um, yeah. They are Urashima's grandsons and... Um, so obviously the academy they go to, they have all grades because the boys also go to that school. They're definitely that, that same archetype that appears in the earlier shows of this mm -hmm. genre. And they're kind of interesting because they kind of feel like, I don't want to say an ownership of Mako, but they do feel very, very much like they can just kind of barge into her house whenever <laughs> to hang out with her and don't understand why it's like, you know, she's a teenager. She has other things to worry about, really. But mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and again, it feels like they they wanted to include this archetype that was mm -hmm. very useful for causing mischief plots in the previous shows. But like, mm. the dynamic is different when your protagonist is a teenager. So how do you include those characters? Right. You just shoehorn them in, basically. Yeah, and speaking of shenanigans, um, we haven't mentioned yet, and it is important to mention that there are a lot of animals in the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask you, because this is one of the things I didn't understand from just watching the raw Japanese. What does Grandpa Urashima do? Oh, like he is an exotic wildlife, uh, not a researcher exactly. Like he, he takes care of wildlife. So that's why there's so many wild animals. I knew it. I wondered if he was like a wildlife vet or something. Yeah, basically. So that's why they generally have a lot of animals like just kind of kept up in cages or whatever, but also why they have a pet bear and a pet monkey. <laughs> that they keep on a chain, which is like, that feels wrong. Yeah, it's like, oh, a bear and a dog, same thing, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> How wacky. Yeah, it's very interesting. How wacky, the bear is mauling somebody, oh god. They also have a parrot that shows up a lot, and I think the main one that we see a lot is the monkey, Kiko. Yes, yes. Kiko, like, comes to school with her, and like, regularly like just hangs out with Mako wherever she goes in a way that's like is this like legal <laughs> like you can't bring any <laughs> other pets in here like she takes Kiko to like a jazz club <laughs> that's a very interesting episode because there are some like bullies that interfere with the monkey and then like the monkey like literally pees on someone it's very wild <laughs> <laughs> a lot of shenanigans that come from from that whole story arcs and episodes that involve this monkey and yeah the bear sometimes but not as much mm. yeah again animals good for shenanigans till i want shenanigans there's animals yes exactly so yeah that's very interesting especially considering like 
you would think that, yeah, Mr. Udashima lives in a kind of strange place to be taking care of exotic pets <laughs> in this, like, shack by the ocean. Like, mm, I'm not sure if this is really the best yeah, spot. Yeah, like, he doesn't even specialize in marine life. <laughs> exactly. It's very curious. Which would make sense for a Little Mermaid story. Also that, yeah. And when they actually try to, like, give Urashima, like, a backstory, it's kind of, it's there, but it's not much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so let's talk about some favorite episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> God, where do we even start? I guess we should probably go in order. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but episode two, I think, really is a great tone setter for the series as a whole yes because episode one is very standard like little mermaid with a few additions for the most part Mm -hmm. but the rest of the series isn't like that episode two is what really tells you what you're in for because it involves like mako not even trying to establish an identity for herself because she gets kidnapped by the mob before she can do that yeah Basically, she gets put on TV by Grandpa Urashima to try and figure out, like, who her parents are. Mm -hmm. And some mobsters take advantage of that and pretend to be her parents and take her hostage. And she fights with them in a hotel room and seems to die at one point from a gunshot. But don't worry, she's fine. And her father comes to save her and gives her a magic pendant. But then she goes to Grandpa Urashima for help and he's like, I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) And she gets kidnapped again after that and uses the magic of her pendant to run the mobsters off the road and kill them in a fiery car crash. Yeah. It's wild. And then there's a heartwarming ending where she goes back to Grandpa and the two twins and is like, I guess we can be a family now. Yay. Yeah. It's so wild because like, yeah, so this establishes the start. Obviously she knows who her parents are, but she can't tell anyone, oh, my dad is a dragon king or whatever. So she has to like play like, sure, I don't know who they are. And so that's why they're going through this whole charade and everything, like trying to find her parents. And so these two are like, oh, we're your parents. Welcome home. We love you. (laughs) And, you know, I think part of it is the fact that like they also use her name and stuff. So it's, I don't know. Yeah, I guess maybe they heard it on TV. Right. If she used it on TV. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, Impressive detail on Mako's part, by the way. Like, she's been a human for all of five minutes, and she thinks to use the phone in the hotel room to try and call for help. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how does she know what that is? There's a lot going on. I mean, there are a lot of things like that, though, like about her. So especially thinking about the Little Mermaid story. I feel like the major theme of her story is that she wants to prove to her father that humans aren't bad. And then she spends the whole Mm -hmm. show dealing with terrible humans. Yeah, which I do like as an overarching story plot for her. Yeah. (laughs) So it's very interesting because it's kind of like all these different characters that are testing her faith in humanity, basically. Mm -hmm. She's clearly quite innocent in this idea of like thinking that, you know, humans are so great because she... Throughout the series, she's dealing with seeing people do terrible things and like looking at comments on environmentalism and how they're affecting nature in the form of other kinds of mythical creatures and so on. So it's there's a lot going on. <laughs> but yes, I would mm-hmm. agree this episode is definitely a tone setter because, you know, you go into the first episode, if you kind of have a vague idea of like the store of the Little Mermaid, you might think, oh, I know what's going to happen from now on. I went a very, very long time only having watched the first episode of the show. I'm talking like (laughs) years where I had only watched one episode. It might be the only episode that is actually subtitled or fan subbed, I mean. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. 
maybe two is subtitled somewhere. Somebody said it might be, but I couldn't find it if it is. Yeah. So, like, to put things in perspective, I watched this show. Probably it was subtitled, but I don't remember. But I watched it on Crunchyroll before Crunchyroll was, like, a legit place to watch shows. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's how I found out about this show. So, yeah, so they only had the first episode on the site. So I watched that. And I expected, oh, eventually I'm going to watch this show where she clearly is going to meet this guy. And it's going to somehow be 48 episodes of her, like, falling in love with this dude. No, not at all. (laughs) Could not be further from what I expected. But yeah, this first episode is like, uh, no, this is going to be a very wild ride, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so. Yeah, it really speaks to how few people have watched the show, because you would think this would be the sort of thing people would bring up in talking about the history of magical girls or mermaids or anything like that. The history of anime generally. Yeah. No, just nobody's seen this show, so they can't. Yeah, there are so many things that like people think about magical girls or think about animation that are disproven by the existence of the show, which yeah. is very fascinating. So, yeah, shall we talk about Santa? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think this is on your list. So why don't you tell us um, the episode about Santa, this heartwarming Christmas episode? It, well, it is a heartwarming Christmas episode, but yeah. You know, many, many magical girl shows, starting from Sally, have a Christmas episode. In fact, I think it's Sally, it's episode two or three. It's like very early on. (laughs) But um, yeah, so the Santa episode or Christmas episode of Mako is very fascinating. It's episode eight. Santa is a kind of wizard, I guess. He's like this very skinny old man with a long beard wearing a gray suit. He looks like he could be unhoused. It's really unclear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looks like Gandalf the Grey in a shabby suit. Yes, that's a great description. Yes, that is a look. And he looks very despondent as he walks through, you know, the streets of Yokohama. And they show like, it's it's very much this comment on like, how Christmas is so commercialized that people have lost the true meaning of Christmas. Which is very mm-hmm. fascinating for a show from 50 years ago. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Yeah, that's the same thing that we hear today. In fact, a lot of the lessons and messages of this show are still repeated in stuff today. So it's very it's very interesting. But for example, there's a Santa sexy cabaret show or whatever uh, <laughs> being advertised. And oh, yeah, there's like a show where people go to learn about Christmas and kids don't really know who Santa is. They just know, oh, we get presents on this day. Which is also very fascinating because Japanese Christmas, you only get one present. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it is an interesting like thing to see. Like this whole excitement and fervor about just getting stuff and buying stuff. And yeah, so Santa is just like very sad. Like, oh, no one has the Christmas spirit anymore, so to speak. And Mako is like, well, she doesn't know that this is Santa. She's talking to this old man who has lost his faith in Christmas. She decides she's, it's up to her to run around finding someone to prove to him that the spirit of Christmas is still around somewhere. And, you know, the, the main characters that we also see in this episode are two kids who are clearly orphaned and also... Yeah, like, like stock standard Disney street urchins. Yes, very much so. You know, it's a brother and sister and they're trying their best to just have something to enjoy Christmas together. Uh, It's very clear that they, like, very recently lost their mother. Yeah. It's, like, their first Christmas alone and stuff, and it's just, like, what is going on here? You should be 
taken care of somewhere. I don't know. They're the characters that help prove to Santa that there's still Christmas spirit. Mako teams up with them to like create a really weird Christmas tree and she uses her magic pendant to uh, make the star of the tree and all that. So it's very cute and it's also very interesting. Like this is one of the first episodes that shows this recurring theme of like commenting on how terrible the modern world is. <laughs> Which again, very fun to watch 50 years in the future. Yeah, that's, that's true. I hadn't thought about that, but it, do, it does tie into that theme very much. Yeah, yeah. Like there are a lot of parts of this episode that I was just very shocked at like the idea of like showing like sexy Santa Cabaret in a magical girl show for kids <laughs> is very funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's not happening in Precure anytime soon, for sure. <laughs> yeah. There's so much in this show that you're like, why would they show this to kids? How could they show this to kids? Yes, yeah, very. it's a very different time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. I guess the next episode we should talk about is episode 11, which is another example mm. of one of these kinds of stories that you don't expect to see in a show from Japan from 50 years ago. Certainly not a kid's show at that. Yeah considering the way that people think of Japanese animation today, for sure. Yeah, so it's an episode that deals pretty directly with anti-Black racism. Um, It deals with a character named Jim who is being pursued by authorities who think that he's stolen something, and Mako tries to get him out of trouble and generally tries to understand his situation. And ultimately... The resolution is that he can't resolve the situation and ends up leaving Japan because the racism is so bad in Japan that he he's never going to get away from this problem. Hmm. It's kind of clear, but it's never explicitly stated that he is specifically American. Yeah, like there's a very like a very strongly implied flashback with some American-looking settings, but that's they yeah. don't specifically say. Yeah, but he says like, "Oh, in my country." Uh, I can't trust the police because uh, they will kill people. And it's like all these different things about how terrible anti-blackness is in his country, which is assumed to be the U.S. And, you know, that's why he came to Japan to escape anti-blackness. And then he comes to Japan. And I know this is a major case where um, you didn't have full context for this episode. Yeah, no, I, I would certainly like to hear more details about this episode because I think there's probably some nuance that I would have missed in this one. Well, the first big thing is that they use the Japanese equivalent of the N-word in this show. Yes, you've told me about this one and I'm like, oh, okay then. Yeah, this was a big shock for me because for one thing, for... Obvious reasons, this is not something part of my vocabulary either, but this is a word that like, I mean, I knew that there was a word like this, but I didn't even know what it was until like, maybe a few years ago, because again, not part of my vocabulary, why would I need to know this word? It's used very directly because, so, you know, the whole situation is like the police think that he stole something because the scene that they show him like in the shop, he's like in the department store or whatever they see like a lot of people are like whispering like wow there's like a black man here and it's already very uncomfortable and then a customer notices something is missing and someone else says oh it must be him and then they use the n-word or the equivalent of the n-word in japanese i literally had to like pause and walk away and like think about a lot of things like yeah it was a very shocking to actually hear it said in this context. And it's like, this is the last place I expected to hear this word said aloud. Yeah, like, yeah. It, it's even kind of wild. Like, you can watch, like, older animation from, like, 
Disney and whatever various studios from a long time ago with explicit racist caricatures and like, okay, I know it's terrible. I know that's what I'm getting into. But when you get into something that's well-meaning like this and it blindsides you, it's really, oh God. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, speaking of like caricatures and stuff. So like there are obviously very clear for especially a Western audience, very clear anti-Black caricatures that you can see, uh, you know, from as far back as uh, Disney's Fantasia and so on. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of those cartoons that like are very, very clearly anti-Black to a Western audience. And this is definitely not to excuse it, but when all the kind of goofy animation styles that I was talking about in terms of character design and so on, when those came to Japan, that kind of got taken out of context a lot, I think. And so that's why even recent animation, you still see those like weird outline lips in a lot of people's art styles and stuff. It's like clearly comes from this particular problem. Or it gets kind of like... Not the word fantasized, but like fantasy sized mm. <laughs> in shows like Dragon Ball or Pokemon that has Ugh. like Jinx that was very clearly based on that yeah. style back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Dragon Ball obviously is like a major issue also. But even so, like thinking about even in other Magical Girl series, like or even in Mako-chan, that image exists, but on completely Japanese characters. Like they mm. put those lips on Japanese characters and it's kind of strange because it's like, oh, I see this is clearly like a racist thing, but it's being used in a non-racist context, if that makes sense. It's very strange. Yeah, it's meant to signify, oh, this character's a big dumb oaf. Yeah, something, yeah. Uh, you see it even, like, yeah, in all kinds of animation, you have to, I think in the present day, you don't see it as much, but I've definitely seen some stuff from the 2000s that still have it, so it's, yeah. yeah. I've definitely seen some modern character designs that, like, again, aren't on black characters, but use those, like, exaggerated outline lips, for right. sure. So it's a very weird problem of Japanese animation that, yeah, it's hard to explain. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and it, worth noting this episode, like, basically, the character of Jim is not caricatured in that way whatsoever, right. thankfully. He's given the generic guy plus dark skin, basically. Which yeah. is better. It's its own problem in a way, but yeah. I'll take it over the caricature. Exactly, exactly. So it's like, like he could just be Akira with like smaller eyebrows yeah. and darker skin. Like, like he doesn't really have like a black hairstyle even. He just like, he has black hair. Yeah. Also the fact that his name is Jim is for me, like it's not explicitly a problem. There aren't a lot of, you know, famous black characters in the Japanese consciousness. And for me, this is very clearly a reference to like Huckleberry Finn, which is not great. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So it's like... Mm. Could also be Jimi Hendrix, maybe. Well, actually, that's funny. There is a Jimi Hendrix reference in Mako-chan. Oh, <laughs> I know that they've re- they reference a couple 60s and 70s bands fairly explicitly, yeah. <laughs> The, the way that they illustrate musicians and stuff, definitely. But no, there is a scene where, actually, it might be this episode. They go to a graveyard. The, one of the grave headstones says Jimi Hendrix on it. <laughs> but they misspelled Jimi. But um, it's like very clearly meant to be Jimi Hendrix. It's like that they can't be anyone else. But it's very, very interesting hmm. that that's there. Yeah. Clearly a lot of issues with the way that they handle this from a modern perspective. But also, it's a lot better than could be expected of the time so it's yeah it's a curiosity it's really interesting to talk about and yeah. i do want to mention one other thing about this episode that's not specifically related to the original production mm-hmm. but related to one of the dubbed versions oh, yes. like the show didn't get far outside of japan but italy got a lot of stuff from this time period and mako-chan was one of them 
Yeah. And there were a few modifications to the show, like episode 13 is a major one they modified as well, because that's one where Mako goes on a date with her dad. Don't worry about it again. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of it, again, there's shots of her like in bikinis in that in that episode. And a lot of the general setup is changed for the Italian dub to make it less weird. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But for this episode, they outright rewrote the ending. Mm. Like again, we it ends with Jim leaving on a ship saying like I can't stay here anymore. This isn't going to get better. Yeah. Whereas the Italian dub ending, I think recuts and rewrites it to say like I'm just going to turn myself into the police and explain the situation and everything's going to be fine. Oh my god. Yeah. I know you mentioned this in Mako profile, but that was like Yeah. very shocking to hear it's like what? Huh? How? Yeah. No. That kind of just erases the whole point of the episode, I feel like. Yeah, it's like they they really didn't want people to stop trusting the cops, I guess. Yeah, that and then also thinking about the context of like this being clearly a Japanese show that is showing that Japanese people are racist. Mm. Yeah, that for me is very interesting to see because that is definitely for me like the big thing about this episode also. It's just like... It's a obviously just generally a fascinating episode, but also giving this message that like even today when something like that happens in media, when any media from Japan points out that maybe Japanese people are not great, uh, people get very upset, you know? Yeah, it's kind of wild to me that it was like the Italians that did that and it was in the Japanese show to begin with. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm glad they attempted the subject at least. Yeah. But there's certainly a lot of things that went wrong with it in execution. Yeah. I'm definitely very curious about later on in animation, there were a lot of other adaptations of stories that feature Black characters, but usually in a historical context from Japan. So it's interesting to see this modern story with that. And of course, there's a lot of improvements in recent years. There's more diversity in characters, generally speaking. It's not perfect, but we're getting there, I think. Yeah. Although I think you'd mentioned to me that like there is less colorism in a way in these older shows, which I think was interesting when you pointed it out because I realized, yeah. yeah, that's true. There are a lot of like within Japanese characters, characters with different like darker skin tones and varying skin tones than there are in a lot of modern day anime. Yeah, this is very interesting because like it's something that I noticed right away and makes sense to me. Like I think that this is something that people don't necessarily realize because of not just animation but also just Japanese media in general really, really focuses and pushes forth a lot of very, very fair-skinned Japanese people uh, as like beauty standards and so on. Just for context, I know kids who did not know until recently that Naomi Osaka is half black because some Japanese people are actually already that dark, even if they are from two Japanese parents. Mm -hmm. So like if you go to a park in the summertime in Japan, you're going to see that like we get very dark. We are an island nation. We just have very, very light skinned people in the media. And so that's very clear in in animation today and so it was something that i thought was very curious about mako-chan and even other older shows is like the variety of skin tone in the characters yeah especially i think you see a lot more of it in the shows that are focused on child characters in the early majoko series maybe because it's like in terms of media image maybe it is more of a focus to include fair skin characters for like teenagers and up for like beauty purposes or whatnot or I don't know what the reasoning would be Mm -hmm. but it does seem more common in shows where child casts are the main focus to have more of this 
variety of skin tones shown. Yeah. I mean, honestly, there are already a lot of non-Japanese people or non-ethnically Japanese people in Japan. Like, more than a lot of Japanese people want to admit. <laughs> but I guess in more recent years, there are more, like, visibly different people coming to Japan uh, or, like, raising kids here and stuff. So um, there's been this kind of, like, refocusing on trying to make sure to help, you know, stifle bullying and stuff like that to, like, kind of focus on, like, hey, you know, we don't all need to use the same uh, crayon to color our skin or whatever, you know, stuff like that. Mm. So yeah, that is just like something that I think is interesting in terms of looking at older shows. It's like more mm. clear. I guess if we want to segue from that, <laughs> why don't we talk about the episode that has a guy who's maybe a Nazi, probably actually a Nazi in it? Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Perfect segue. Uh, episode <laughs> 26, The Mischievous Prince. <laughs> This is part of the series of episodes where Akira is just straight up gone for no no explanation. Like, we know that he has a job somewhere else, but he's not in Yokohama. We don't know where he is for months. And different guys appear for one episode in Mako's life. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this one, boy, there's a guy in this one. Mm -hmm. And one that she doesn't necessarily even discover on her own. Yeah. He is literally a prince of Germany who is flying over Mako's school in a helicopter one day and spots her and is like, oh, she hot, and <laughs> invites her to go out with him, basically. Yeah. I do want to specify that they don't say that he's from Germany. Oh, I, fair. But it's like he's wearing like such like a German royalty military type uniform. And there's just so much German like imagery throughout. Yeah, he speaks what seems to be German. Uh, I don't know German, so I don't know the accuracy of the yeah, German. Yeah, he does say Guten Morgen, yeah. so it's, it's fairly good assumption that it would be. Yeah, but definitely full Hugo Boss Nazi regalia going on. And also, <laughs> at the end, when he's leaving the airport, the announcement does say that he's flying to Berlin. So I don't know why it was okay to name drop Berlin, but not Germany, but... There we go. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and he has the blondest, just bright yellow hair. and Just like the, the Aryan wet dream, yes. basically. It's so funny because it's like, yeah, if he's not a Nazi, his family is Nazis, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's weird because like he doesn't necessarily act like one, but he, he like yeah. is dressed in, again in this like Hugo Boss regalia, full blonde, blue eyed, mm -hmm. like get up. Yeah, very much so. Like he is like the full stereotype of the ideal Aryan German and yeah using German and so on but like this is something that's very interesting really throughout the series is Mako is not like other girls not because she's a mermaid but because she is not as ladylike she loves to mess around or whatever I mean she's a kid basically is what is what it is but yeah do they do that a lot yeah yeah, again, I think this word pops up a lot in early Mojoko series, but it's the Otenba character type, mm -hmm. the boyish character type. Yeah, so like she doesn't mind like roughhousing and so on. There's a great shot of her like one day accidentally throwing a volleyball and hitting Tomiko in the head and knocking her out. And, like they're just like, you know, <laughs> all these different things. So yeah. She is definitely very uh, energetic and yeah. mischievous in this way. This episode is also really good for animation flourishes because oh, yes. there's some really good little like comedic slapstick touches to stuff like Mako swinging the baseball bat and yes. like various hijinks throughout the episode. 
yeah it's very expressive uh, animation again this show is one like all the o- older shows so you can see a lot of like american animation i guess conventions mm-hmm. yeah like yeah. squash and stretch and such yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so you know this whole date or whatever is very fascinating there's a whole thing where she has to uh first talk to her father because he's like oh my god you're gonna be dating a prince um we have to make sure this all works out and yeah. it's 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 a very fascinating episode also because like her yeah. grandmother it's is like, spying the whole time mako's dad and her sea witch grandma are like just spying on her the whole time and like really anxious that the state is gonna go well yeah but they're worried that she's going to mess things up because of her like personality but actually, yeah. he is the troublemaker. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. there's there's extended sequences where they imagine like what might go wrong with Mako being a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. And then it's him that does the exact thing they were worried about. Yeah, exactly. It's very, very wild. It's very funny. Uh, you can definitely see also the things that Mako has in common with her grandmother in this yeah. episode. Yeah, it's just all very ridiculous, but so fun. So fun. Yeah, there's a weirdly sweet, like, little downtime moment where, like, the pair just go to, like, like a fairground or somewhere mm-hmm. or for the, the afternoon and they just get burgers together and sit and enjoy their time together. And I think that single scene is more screen chemistry than Mako and Akira get throughout the entire series. Yeah, seriously. Like, I can't believe, like, at the end of this, I was like, wow, you know, this Nazi prince might be a better match for Mako. <laughs> I cannot believe it. God. It's so wild. Don't do this to me, Mako-chan. So, so strange. Yeah, it's just incredible. <laughs> and again, this whole episode ends with him causing so much trouble that the entire Air Force is called in to deal with the problem. Yes. And it ends on like an air force carrier and somehow Mako gets blamed for everything. And her father shows up to literally put her over his knee and spank her. Yeah. (laughs) Talking about people hitting Mako. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that later. (laughs) It's just a a constant issue, but yeah, it's just like very wild. Just generally like it's, it's quite an episode for sure. Mm. And like there are several episodes all in a row where she is, like having flirtations with these different guys who don't appear ever again. But this is like the big one where I'm like, who wrote this? Like, what was the purpose? Why did they make this character? But it's, yeah, it's it's very weird to be like, oh, you know what? This guy might be the one for her, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking at the Anime News Network page. Apparently we can thank one of the main writers, Masaki Tsuji himself, for that episode. Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Okay, so what episode should we talk about next? Hmm. Hmm. Well, it doesn't neatly segue like the last one did, but one <laughs> of my other favorite ones is a more serious episode, um, and it's the episode about Lulu the St. Bernard. Ah, yes. <laughs> this one is another episode, like many episodes, that don't really seem to have a purpose in terms of the main storyline. Yeah, like it's just a conflict of the day episode, but it was an effective one. Yeah, yeah. It's a very sweet story. Yeah, I feel like someone on the staff just really loves St. Bernard's and were like, let's make an episode of that one. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Lulu is a dog who has been with the same uh, owner all her life, you know, since they were both young and she's now blind. So Lulu's role, like she has to help her basically like a service dog. Mm hmm. But the episode starts really dark because it starts with 
Mako seeing this guy just hit this dog for seemingly no reason and then drive off. And yeah. so she's taking care of Lulu. And then she has to try and figure out, like, well, where did you come from, dog? Like, I gotta take you back to somewhere, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, her owner, she's, like, locked away in her own house and stuff, and it's a Yeah, cool and you, you see generally, like, the dog is protecting her from, like, I think an abusive father or father figure or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, because it's been a while since I watched the episode, but I don't remember him being her father. Yeah, this yeah. might be, again, a, one where the nuance is lost in my lack of Japanese. <laughs> But he seemed like some kind of caretaker figure anyway. Yeah, and he hates dogs, so he wants Lulu out. Uh, he doesn't care how much those two have like a deep connection. And he locks her away so that she cannot get her dog back. And yeah, it's very heartbreaking because the house goes into flames and Lulu has to rescue her. And unfortunately, she dies at the end. So... Mm-hmm. yeah it's just like yeah it's a very intense episode <laughs> it's the one episode of the series that legitimately made me tear up and i know it's like kind of stock standard over the top shoujo tragedy mm-hmm. but it really worked on me because yeah. the connection between lulu and her owner was very well portrayed yeah they did a really good job with this episode and it's just like it's very intense and phew it's a lot <laughs> basically mm. and you get this nice like panning shot at the end of like like they put Lulu's collar at her grave and then there's mm. like a panning shot of like a St. Bernard in silhouette standing on a mountain cliff. Yeah. Clearly someone just wanted to draw a lot of St. Bernards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was a very sweet episode. And yeah. Like I'll fully admit, I to this day haven't watched the entire series because it's one is well, it's really long. <laughs> so kudos to you for watching the whole thing. <laughs> but in general, I had watched a lot of those Majoko episodes by that point mm-hmm. and I didn't feel it was necessary to watch all the standard episodes so i skimmed the first little bit like okay this looks like standard toei stuff i don't need to watch this one and Mm -hmm. i moved on to whatever the next one was yeah that makes total sense because especially after watching sally and aqua it's like yeah they very much have the same things going on a lot of the time yeah yeah but this also means that i probably missed some wild stuff that was hidden in one of those episodes and i think from what you've told me it sounds like there's a couple of those oh yeah there's a lot of stuff it's uh, i can't i could never even like try to list off every wild thing that happens in every episode but yeah there are some really really wild story plots <laughs> for sure mm-hmm. i mean um yeah, there are two episodes that talk about suicide in very different ways. Yeah, I've seen one of them. I think I haven't seen the other one. Yeah, I think you've seen the one with the motorcyclist. Yeah, I saw the one with the, the motorcycle girl who makes friends with Kiko. Yeah, yeah. It's very sad because it's like this girl who like loses all hope for, I guess, her own life. And so she decides to, to commit suicide. And mm-hmm. it's very intense. And of course, it's very intense oh, for Mako. But then the other episode is about it starts off with seeing like this whole thing where like there's a huge crowd and there are police officers around and a guy who clearly is trying to uh, jump off a building and it already starts off really wild because Mako tries to save him with her magic and it doesn't work the dragon king is like you can't save a guy from trying to commit suicide here's how you do it and he like breaks the building so that the guy starts falling And he's like, oh my god, help me, help me. He's like, got it. That guy is never going to try to commit suicide ever again. And he's like very proud of himself. Mm -hmm. Very wild. (laughs) And then later, there's like this whole thing where the guy is on TV saying how he lost his daughter and his wife in an accident the year before. His daughter was just a baby. 
And so he doesn't have the will to live anymore. He's decided this is the anniversary of that. So I'm going to kill myself on this date. And this whole thing is on TV because they're looking for a quote unquote soul lady. I don't know what they mean by this, but sure. Who would be able to convince him to not do the thing he's saying he's going to do. In a whole weird series of events, Mako ends up becoming chosen for this, even though she doesn't actually want to do it. So she's she's tasked with trying to convince a suicidal person not to commit suicide, which is like, dude, you're 15. What are you going to be able to do to tell someone this? Yeah. And again, hey, for kids. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is like she figures out like she does some snooping. She figures out that it's all a hoax and that his wife and daughter are actually alive. They're basically kidnapped and taken from him so like he can't see them until he goes through with this whole plot so like the whole thing is that he was never going to actually commit suicide but like the whole thing was going to be such a tv spectacle that it would make this tv station a lot of money Mm. yeah maybe this is why it didn't trip my like scanning sensors when i was skimming through episodes yeah again there's lots of organized crime episodes in shows like this weirdly yeah exactly so it's just like so wild and The way she uses her magic in this episode is that she gives him this weird, very trippy fever dream that is full of paper cranes and like him saying like, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And then they decide to basically punk the whole TV station by pretending that he actually does kill himself. And they're like, oh no, this was never supposed to happen. He's supposed to be alive. Oh my God, I should actually go back and rewatch this. (laughs) It's very wild. And that's the whole thing is like, you know, you guys have learned your lesson. Don't make light of suicide, basically, is a lesson, right? For Mm. the TV show. But like, it's just a lot. (laughs) And again, this is for kids. It is very wild. Yeah. Yeah. Again, ambitious topic for a show of this era Mm. not necessarily well handled but (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) but it's interesting to see yes okay is there any other episode you want to talk about before we get to the kind of finale of the show there's two main ones that i want to touch on that are one of them is plot relevant one of them isn't but is still one of the more memorable parts of the show Mm -hmm. one is episode 42 which is one of the big plot episodes And the other is the two-parter right before the finale. Let's just put a quick spoiler warning here since it is plot relevant and we're talking about the end of the show. So for people who don't want to know the ending, thank you for listening. And you've already gotten a lot of info, so we'll see you next time. (laughs) Yeah, and if if you really do want to see like bits of this uh, story and uh, but you can't access the show because understandably it's hard to get, look at my Maho profile video on it and you can see some video clips from it at least. Yes, yes. Definitely, I recommend your video as complimentary to this episode because there's a lot of stuff you go into that we won't get into today. But Mm. yeah, okay, so yes, episode 42. There's the episodes right before that one, too, that are probably like relevant to talk about because that kind of leads into it. Sure, yeah. I'm trying to figure out when Akira leaves and then when he comes back because it's like a huge gap. There's not many episodes that he's actually in. Yeah. (laughs) Despite being one of the nominal main characters. Yeah, it's very fascinating. (laughs) I guess it's fair that they would be able to say, oh, it's been two years, because, like, who knows how long between visits that it's been since, like, in between various episodes. Yeah, because there are some episodes where it's, like, clearly a huge amount of time passes. I think one of the last episodes with Akira before this was the episode where the scandals in this show are very strange with Mako. Like, Mm -hmm. 
she is caught talking to Akira in public and it becomes a school scandal that gets her kicked out of the school. Even though she's talked to him in public multiple times before this. Yes. But like the rumor is they might have kissed, but they didn't kiss. Like, oh, they did hug and someone saw a silhouette of a hug and that was enough to be scandalous. Mm. I mean, to be fair, like even now, public displays of affection are not very much a thing in Japan. They're considered kissing is considered super private hugging. Like, I mean, it took my husband like months before he would hold my hand in public, you know, so not because he's ashamed of me, but because like, that's a very shameful act basically to be caught doing. It's just like a a politeness thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Private stuff. Yeah. So she goes off basically just, uh, it's kind of implied that she like walks around all winter long looking for Akira. It's so wild. Yeah. I I wasn't sure. (laughs) Yeah. It just, it's very unclear how much time has passed, but, Yeah, so episode 42 has everyone on a trip back to the same shore where Mako originally washed up. And um, she says it's been two years since everything started. But at the same time, she has not aged up. Uh, Everyone at school is the same. She has the same teacher, as we see in later episodes. Yeah, and this is why we brought up the fact that she should be in junior high at the beginning of this podcast. Yes, because if she if two years has passed, then she is now 17. So she should be in high school by this point. Right. So I don't know how this academy works. Maybe it's different because it's like a non-uniform weird academy. Yeah, yeah. That conveniently has everyone in the same class with the same teacher every year. Right. <laughs> yeah, so with that, this is the episode where Akira gets to come back because they go on a boat trip. Mm-hmm. And it's a class boat trip also, question mark, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> At least, yeah, because the teacher is there. Also, the principal of the school is there, who we haven't talked about yet, but she's a she's a very interesting, very frustrating character. <laughs> Definitely kind of villainous. Mostly she's just there to yell a lot, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, generally speaking, where the relationship between Mako and Akira finally reaches some form of a head. Yeah. It was like an episode or two prior. Mako, for reasons related to the plot of that episode, had to rescue Akira at sea again. Mm-hmm. During part of that, he has like a vision where like she's stopping time to let him swim back to the shore. Mm-hmm. And during that time, he very briefly sees her as a mermaid and has like a brainwave like, wait a sec. Yeah. <laughs> Did I not dream that thing? Yeah, yeah. So by the time they get to this class trip, he has his suspicions about Mako's true identity. Yeah. The actual trip back to the place is in episode 41, and then episode 42 is the the boat trip. Right. So, like, that's when she gets to see him again, and there's also, like, this other girl there that is, like, hearing the story of the woman who rescued him, and she's like, oh, you know, that could have been me. It's, like, very Vanessa and the Little Mermaid energy. So yeah, so that's when that the whole rescue mission happens and then the whole like, yeah, her stopping the waves and parting the sea so that he can swim over. It's like kind yeah. of unclear how it works in terms of like logistics, but sure. Yeah. And yeah. Then... There's some really cool animation in these episodes too. Oh, like, yeah. When time is stopped and the waves are very still and it goes to kind of like a blue filter kind of art style. Yeah, yeah. And there's a bit where Mako is like jealous of this girl that Akira is talking to and fantasizes about becoming a mermaid again and 
murdering her yes basically. yes absolutely that is what she is imagining it's very wild because again like sure she rescued this guy because he was hot but also like he hasn't done anything to render this kind of like jealousy and everything so yeah mm. it's interesting but yeah the the animation for that dream sequence is very very trippy yes. like lots of different colors and negative filters and whatnot yes yes exactly there's a lot of that throughout the series of like very ambitious use of like wild colors that's part of what draws me to it. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's also just like emblematic of the 70s because Cutie Honey is the same way as well. Yeah, yeah. So this boat trip in episode 42, Akira is working on the ship and he actually like calls to get Mako with him privately and he like talks to her and, you know, it's like very clear like they're finally like flirtations happening between them, like something that actually seems like maybe he's interested in her. Because, like, honestly, before that, like, they were talking and stuff, but it never really felt like he was actually, like, super interested in her. Yeah, like, again, you had that nice scene of them in the snow, but that's, like, as close as it gets. Right. It's just very unclear what she is to him until this episode, basically. Because he finally puts it together um, while they're out on sea. It's also very interesting. There's, like, a running gag throughout the episode that, like, everyone else is seasick except for Michael. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> Absolutely everyone else in their class, including the teachers, are all sick constantly. And they can't bear to eat any seafood because it just makes them feel more sick. It's yeah. very silly. But Mako's like, mm-hmm, whatever. But yeah, so there's also this very nice scene. Like, she's playing piano, which we didn't know she can do, but sure. It's been two years. She could have picked it up. <laughs> sure, why not? And, you know, he Akita comes in and is like, hey, I figured it out. Like, you are the one who rescued me and she's so happy of course and they're like hugging mm-hmm. each other everything is and it's lovely and her eyes are sparkling and it's so like sparkling. max shoujo mode yes yes it's a very very cute very romantic scene it does feel very different in a lot of ways from everything she's also wearing like a really nice cocktail dress um, yeah yeah so yeah it's, it seems like everything is gonna be fine and her father appears and he's giving her uh, his blessing and so she's very happy about that but then there's a whole other thing. Earlier in that episode, he was um, being spoken to by, I think, like other gods of the world or something or some other power in the world. Yeah, I think it's just God, honestly. Yeah, just God basically reprimanding him for not bringing Mako back to the ocean in all this time. Yeah. So by giving his blessing on this relationship, he's effectively signing his own doom. Yes, because as soon as he leaves her, he just like, falls to the bottom of the ocean it's intense because she doesn't even know that that happened Mm -hmm. it's just like very much a whole thing about like he's doing it for her because she's his daughter and he wouldn't even consider anything otherwise and this is the other time that we see her mother (laughs) yeah she has to do her father's job because he's dead i guess and so she (laughs) comes up to talk to her and uh explain what happened So she decides that she's going to sacrifice herself because also at this point, the island that they were going to visit turns out to be a volcano that is about to erupt. And it's very wild. Yeah, it's implied to be like a consequence of the Dragon King of the Sea being like indisposed, basically. Mm -hmm. Everything is just blowing up around them and they can't get away in time. So it's very dangerous for everyone. And so she's trying to use her magic to stop it, but she can't because her father is gone. And that's when she begs the gods to sacrifice her life. You want me back in the ocean so badly? Well, you can take me here. Yeah. 
She just wants everyone else to be okay, uh, especially Akira, of course. And that sacrifice brings her from the ocean back to the boat and everyone is back to normal. The Dragon King comes back and like does a whole lot of cool stuff to stop everything. Yeah, the animation, like we were saying that he can turn into a literal dragon and this is the episode that happens and it is rad as heck. Yeah, it's very cool. There are definitely some parts that are like the animation is a little wacky, but like as far as like the full sequences of him like throwing stuff at the volcano and whatever, that's very fun. I mentioned this in Maho Profile, but I do want to bring it up. But it was one of the episodes key animated by Shingo Araki, who's a big name in animation circles. Like, he became, like, the main character designer for Cutie Honey and Saint Seiya and a bunch of mm. different shows around this time and has a very distinctive art style. Yeah. Like, a very scratchy, rough style with thick lines. Mm-hmm. And he certainly can draw a scene like nobody else. Yes. So everything is, like, really, really fun and exciting in this episode. It's a very interesting to see that kind of shift, basically, as it gets closer to the end of the series. Uh, we're actually getting some actual plots <laughs> for the, the main story. But it's also another example of like what has been happening throughout the series where they established a rule for the magic for what Mako can or can't do. And then it immediately gets broken <laughs> by the end mm-hmm. of the same episode. So, you know, from the, the smallest things to like her not being able to wear lipstick and like this, this huge yeah, thing. Yeah, that's like, did I interpret that one right? Is it really that mermaids like are poisoned by lipstick like that's what it sounded like to me uh i I wouldn't say it's poison but it's more like this is a a human product so it doesn't work on mermaids because mermaid society is all about like real beauty i guess is the idea oh my god either way like mako gets like a full-on like illness from putting this lipstick on yeah it's like a whole ordeal it's very absurd and then she uses her magic and it's like please let me wear the lipstick one time and it works and it's like life-changing for her it's it's very interesting because of like generally there are restrictions for you know school children to use makeup like most schools don't Mm. allow it even now so it's like a thing that a lot of not necessarily just girls but anyone who's interested in makeup as a child it's usually something you do like kind of in a private setting yeah which is wild that like tropical rouge is focusing so heavily on it this year for pre-cure yeah, but that that was done because one of the main focuses of this season of Precure was because of COVID, they wanted to create activities you could do at home. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, do this lipstick thing at home. Try this hairstyle at home. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that's the whole focus of that. Oh, okay. Season. So, shall we move on to the last few episodes? Yeah, hmm. there is a two-parter before the finale, but it's not really plot relevant. But it's still worth mentioning because it is a two-parter. Yeah, it's the only two-parter in the whole season. Yeah, Um, if you don't count episodes one and two, it's the, yeah, it's the only two-parter. Right. Uh, So this is Yokai no Namida, or the Yokai or Monsters Tears. You know, this is like, in terms of the environmentalist message of the series, this is kind of the final version of that. Mm Mm-hmm. So it basically starts with a new student arriving at the academy who seems like a little weird, but everybody tries to accept him anyway. Mm -hmm. But he's definitely seems like some kind of mischief maker. 
I'll admit I can't remember the first part of this very clearly, mm-hmm. but it, I remember him like trying to go to other kids and like Boncho in particular into walking off the roof of the school because he knows he can like float in midair and not get hurt. Right. Yeah, that was very interesting because this is a case of Boncho being the normal bully type and he's bullying this new kid. I, t- I don't remember if he says that he can float down or like use the umbrella or whatever, but yeah, he's he's got this umbrella with him. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, Bancho's saying, like, you should jump off the building. Come on, do it, do it. And this new guy is like, yeah, I'll do it if you do it, too. And so Bancho says, okay. Oh, that's what it was, yeah. He falls down, no problem. Then magically teleports back up to the roof and says, okay, it's your turn. And it's, like, already very (laughs) creepy. There's, like, one other character kind of like this uh, earlier on in the season and, like, these characters are drawn very, very, you know, again, in the goofy style, not the standard, like, kind of attractive person style. And he's got very, very large eyes that just, yeah, it's like, generally he's very yeah, unnerving. like, big circle eyes and a gaunt, like, triangular face and a big bowl cut. It's right. very weird. Yeah. So it's very clear, even to the audience, that this is someone who is this kind of suspicious and Mako suspects him right away of causing trouble and he like she like follows him to the swamp and figures out that like oh this swamp is a war zone yeah like a military test zone or something like that which I don't know if there was actually one near Yokohama but sure (laughs) yeah it's Mako being shot at by missile launchers yeah (laughs) have fun yeah it's very very wild and she gets rescued by some guy who's like, what are you doing here? Kids are not allowed in this area or whatever. And she kind of puts together that he led her there and he intends to do the same with the other kids. And it's like a very like Pied Piper situation also. Mm-hmm. So like the full first episode is him leading the kids to the place. Not just the kids in her class. It also includes Taro and Jita who again are like kid kids. <laughs> yeah, because again, they have to be included somehow, even if it makes no sense. Yeah, it's very clear, like, it's kind of like a a weird, like, brainwashing type situation, because they're all like, oh, no, it's fun. We're just skipping school and just, like, fishing in the swamp. This is totally normal. (laughs) We do this all the time. (laughs) I mean, I would buy it from them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, it's like Mako trying to get everyone out, uh, of course, but they won't leave. And then also, yeah, her trying to figure out what's going on with this guy who is very suspicious and so that's when she follows him down to the bottom of the swamp and he is a kappa <laughs> yeah 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 and he he has that weird bowl cut because he has like that kappa hairstyle with the little circle cut out at the top yes yes so he changes his form which is actually quite similar to what it was before you see that like all the kappa are like clearly very injured and need medical care of some sort and mm-hmm. you know they all hate humans and it's so fascinating because it goes into this whole long thing about how it used to be that it was a very peaceful society and Kappas and humans live side by side. But then one day the humans decided to just enslave and try to genocide the Kappas, basically. Yeah, this is like the apex of the like dark side of humanity theme of the series. Yeah. Finally, the show is talking about genocide. It's so wild. <laughs> Again, this is one of those things where, you know, they could have talked about how, you know, there was actual genocide that Japan inflicted, but no, we're going to inflict this on Kappas. Yeah, like that would be too controversial. Let's talk about it in this context instead. Yeah. 
But it's just like fully they're saying that they were enslaved by humans and now they hate humans and they want them all to die. Yeah, and there's some very strong imagery in the, in these flashback sequences. Yep. They're done in like still painted images mm-hmm. and there's pictures of like Kappa chained up in indentured labor and villages on fire and Kappa's being crucified. Yeah. Again, show for kids. No <laughs> censorship. You get some weird results. <laughs> Yeah, it's very wild. And so it just makes me wonder, like, what is the purpose of this? Like, and obviously the whole thing about the military testing zone means that this place where the Kappas live, like their their home has just been destroyed completely. And this is something that is also shown earlier in the series with a fairy boy character who is the creepiest fairy I've ever seen, who lived in like a tree and the tree was just cut down and it like caused mass destruction and storms and stuff. So it's like this whole thing of like trying to kill the kids. And the strange thing is, is this Kappa boy decides to change his mind and he's going to save the kids after all. And he says, it's like, oh, well, they're my friends. And I'm like, when did yeah, that happen? Yeah, because Mako makes like the love and peace and friendship speech to right. the, the leaders of the Kappa village. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting because like the elders are like, no, we don't want to have that. But at the same time, with all of that particular context, like, I would be completely understanding if they wanted to kill humans. Like, (laughs) it's very strange. It reminds me of Tokyo Mew Mew's villains. Mm. And it's just like, well, okay, so are the humans bad or are we not bad? Like, what are we doing here? But in any case, they would decide like, yeah, okay, well, even if humans are bad, these kids didn't do it to us, so we shouldn't kill them. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most reasonable interpretation. Yeah. I just remember just being so, like, taken aback because the Kappa boy, who I honestly do not remember his name. Unfortunately, I don't either. (laughs) You know, I watched this episode, like, a few days ago. I don't remember. But uh, he was saying that he would save his friends. And I'm like, since when are you guys friends? You didn't do... I'm pretty sure you tried to kill one of them by making them walk off a building. Yeah, he basically, like, sacrifices himself to save everyone and then... You know, Mako cries and that's able to bring him back to life. Yeah, she has very Disney princess healing tears. Yes, of course. <laughs> and then like after that, they get rescued by humans who are trying to protect the space. And that's when Mako realizes the guy who rescued her the first time around is one of these like protesters who are trying to basically their protest is that they're staying within the military testing zone. So as to help, like, protest against the use of these military things. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I wasn't, I wasn't fully clear on what exactly his role was. So that's, that clarification is appreciated. <laughs> yeah, so that, seeing that there were humans there that were also trying to stop what the other humans were doing inspires the Kappas to leave and go live as humans among humans. So it's a very interesting final episode of shenanigans in Makochan. Mm-hmm. And that's what we get right before the big finale of the whole series. <laughs> yeah. It just feels, again, very out of place, but at the same time, like everything is so wild in this show. So, yeah. like, that could have been the finale, I feel like. Yeah. Because it does tie in very much thematically to the, what the show's trying to do. Hmm. I mean, honestly, 42 could have also been the finale, but yeah. yeah. And so we get 48, which is the final bit of Akira and Mako, and also the final bit of shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like they take a class trip to a zoo, and Bancho gets some beer and gives it to a gorilla. And <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you get a little bit 
uh, yeah, humorous shenanigans again before the big drama sets in. Yeah, it's very interesting. This is, again, you know, Akira has so many jobs. Also, there has been some time since the last time they saw Akira by this point. And I guess this is also just like in regular, you know, the last time yeah. was him was episode 42. Now it's episode 48. Yeah, like they're an official couple by this point, And he's still like going out of town and being away from her. Right. And so he becomes a race car driver because, sure, he had a driving job before. So same difference. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. yeah. So he's like there signing autographs and she didn't even know he was going to be there for this like racy event. And so she's kind of upset with him because he's been going off and continuing to do exactly what he did before, but not necessarily always talking to her about it. Yeah. Like not telling your girlfriend you're going to be in town. Like that seems like rule number one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's also talking all the time about how like he wants to get all this money so that to start their own lives together when they're older like it's very clear like again we don't know how old he is but he's definitely like fully an adult at minimum he's 20 years old at this point mm -hmm. and she's 17 but they're talking about like the rest of their lives and so on yeah yeah i guess i do appreciate that this is a little mermaid story where like the little mermaid and the prince figure that she's interested in get to spend like i guess some years together before they like commit to each other right there is that going for it for sure it's not three days but it's still not a lot of time yeah yeah it's interesting to see that like kind of thing but yeah like when mako is hearing all this stuff about like him like going off to continue doing all these odd jobs and stuff she just feels very upset and her reasoning is that, like, you know, he's not the hero that she was expecting, you know, when she first met him by watching him rescue people after the shipwreck. So she was, like, looking for that Akira, basically. Mm -hmm. And then, again, the drunk gorilla happens. <laughs> Which ends up being a much more serious thing in the episode than you'd expect. Apparently, getting alcohol makes this gorilla have superpowers, and it escapes from its cage and starts, like, attacking everyone. And so, because Mako's in danger, Akira shows up and fights this drunk gorilla. Yeah, he, he uses his sick kung fu backflip kick. Yeah, <laughs> it's so wild. Um, And, you know, everything turns out okay in the end, but uh, because Kiko the monkey, because Kiko's around, of course, and is able to talk to the drunk gorilla in monkey language, I guess, and convince it to go back to the cage. Sure, yep. <laughs> yeah, but Akira is now on the verge of death. <laughs> yeah, he's potentially mortally wounded by these shenanigans, so it's the most serious shenanigans we've ever had. Yes, super wild, because of course, at this point, you know, Mako's like very sure she's going to be spending the rest of her life with this guy, but suddenly he's about to die. What does this mean for, like, everything that she's done, this whole show? And, yeah, there's a lot that happens. <laughs> but, you know, she can't use her magic to heal him because, of course, the magic has rules. And sometimes they're actually enforced rules. Yeah, like, she just used her healing tears last episode to bring Kappa Boy back to life. Exactly. So why is this any different? Missile strikes, I guess, are a different class of injury to drunk gorilla fights. Yeah, I guess so. So, yeah, she decides that she's going to go all the way to her father directly, going swimming to the bottom of the ocean to demand that he help her boyfriend. And it gets very interesting because he's refusing to help a human even though he like totally signed off on this couple before 
so she decides she's going to sacrifice herself and so she's on the brink of death in the ocean because she's in her human body and so the rules change throughout this show but basically because she is a human technically she can drown Mm -hmm. yeah it's just it takes her a little bit longer it's kind of unclear but there have been other times where she almost drowned in the ocean and couldn't swim and all these things so Yeah. yeah she might just have a higher resistance to it but otherwise yeah yeah so she swims around and is like bleeding out and clearly injured and also on the brink of death and that's how she is able to connect her soul to Akira's dying soul and she is fully prepared to just die with him and that could have been the end of the show but of course the dragon king cannot have her die so yeah and he he's prepared to like bring just her back to life right before the sea witch calls him out like hey why would you bring her back and not him and he tries to say like i won't help a human but i'll I'll help my daughter and and she says no she's not your daughter anymore she's not a child of the ocean anymore she's fully a child of the land and you need to accept that so if if you're gonna help her it would be hypocritical of you to not help him too yeah so everything works out and they both survive yeah it's a very a very interesting ending very dramatic but after all that akira finally decides that he's gonna have only one job he's gonna be a sailor which still means he's gonna be away from mako but sure at least it's more consistent i guess yeah i guess and she gives him her necklace to throw into the ocean, to return it to the ocean, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very interesting final episode. <laughs> yeah, it does have a really nice like final like shot. Basically, like her standing on a cliffside as the ship goes away and the necklace has gone into the ocean. And with the loss of that necklace, she's basically signifying that she's ready to move on into adulthood and not be interfered with by her father and her past and actually grow up at this point exactly yeah so like she is accepted that she is fully in her eyes mature i guess and yeah she's accepted this world for all the ugliness in it and accepted it anyway yeah yeah so that's the whole show it's very fascinating just there really isn't anything like it i think not really, no. Yeah. And that probably for good reason, because there's reasons that it's like that and that they're not great. Yeah. But it is really unique and really interesting to talk about and watch. Yeah. I mean, definitely we could probably go through and talk about every single episode. Yeah. And there's definitely episodes that I thought I'd mentioned, but we haven't, and I don't want to spend more time on them. Yeah. Yeah. I do recommend that if people want more info to also check out your Maho profile video on the show and... Yeah, I do hope that it becomes more accessible in the future because it does deserve to be watched by more people, I think. Yeah, I I really hope like some at least like if it doesn't get an official English release, I hope like a fan sub team picks it up someday at least. Yeah, if I would ho- I would want there to be like more official channels, yeah, of course, but that would be the ideal. Yeah, there's so many different other political things that we didn't mention like the episode with the uh, Japanese communist to escape North Korea <laughs> yeah oh god I do want to apologize by the way in that I've told you about this but I want to say it on like a, another medium as well in my Maho profile video I do jokingly call that guy like a hobo with a gun because that's like <laughs> I was trying to reference the movie hobo with a shotgun and just in practice like I shouldn't have used that word like <laughs> Yeah. 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 That's the episode where Kumataro mauls a person. <laughs> yeah, it was like a very violent bear suddenly. 
there's just a lot of stuff going on. And yeah. Mako's a very fascinating character, and the show in general, yeah. the shenanigans are really wild in a very unique way. Yeah. yeah. Also, I don't think we mentioned it. Her outfit's real cute. Oh, yes, that's true. She does have a really great outfit. You know, if you are an appreciator of uh, late 60s, early 70s fashion, you will enjoy the show for sure. There are a lot of yeah. great looks. <laughs> <laughs> There's an episode where she needs a new, like, hot outfit. So she decides to use her magic to just switch clothes with a mannequin in a store. <laughs> and yeah. she's like, I'll, I'll return this later. Is that the date with Mako's dad episode? <laughs> uh, no, that is the one where she's supposed to be pretending to be rich. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a kidnapping. Because I, I know there's clothing shenanigans in the other one as well. Oh, yeah. The date with her father one, that's a little bit different. That's that's also her, like, clearly being a trickster because she, like, totally tricks her dad into buying her a very expensive purse. And it was yeah. very funny. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. It's also a fascinating episode. But yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to say about Makoto? I think we've covered as much as we reasonably can within a two-hour time frame. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I wanted to talk about that we kind of briefly touched upon with the Nazi Prince episode is one of the main problems with this show, like, obviously, they talk about things like racism and suicide in, in a very kind of questionable way sometimes. But the other thing that's really, really sometimes hard to watch about this show is that a lot of characters, uh, especially Mako, but other female characters, get hit in the face a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like one of those things where it's like, I guess it's of the time, but it's also just very strange. Especially, I would say the main perpetrator is actually Grandpa Urashima. He slaps her in the face for all sorts of things that he thinks, even if it's like not even proven that she did anything bad, he will hit her for random things. And he also yeah. constantly throws her out of the house and then says, never mind, a few hours later. It's yeah, like, like remember great. like in episode two when I said like he didn't care when he when she was yelling like these aren't my parents, they kidnapped me, so please help. Yeah, exactly. He's not really a great guy. He's nice for letting her stay and like also take his name, but it's kind of suspicious. It's very strange. Yeah. That relationship is very strange. Sometimes you'll see other characters also get hit. It's generally always girls. It's very curious, like why this happens so much that like this is like the reaction that happens all the time. And Mako does also hit someone at one point. Yeah. But in general, yeah, Mako is very like reactive a lot of the time rather than proactive right. in various ways. Yeah. It's like this thing that's like, you have to know that it's going to happen because it's just like, oh no, why this yeah. just keep happening? And it's almost always for reasons that I cannot personally justify. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. She does get damseled a decent amount. Like, she gets knocked out. She gets tied up and kidnapped a couple times. Mm. Like, there's another episode where she gets kidnapped and tied up by organized criminals. Yeah. Like... <sighs> it's a lot. <laughs> this is... A show for kids, but it's a very wild show for kids. So, you know, <laughs> very much an experiment. And, you know, with any experiment, it's not always going to be a success. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad for the things about it that were a success and that it gave us some some genuinely beautiful, some genuinely, like, artistic and wild things. Um, mm. Some adventurous character-like <laughs> beats. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I think it's a very, very unique show for a lot of reasons. And so... It's definitely very fascinating, and I'm really glad that I finally got to watch it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. So with that, I think that we can come to a close with our chat here. So 
We're done to our last question. So, Erin, do you have a magical persona of your own? Yes. <laughs> I have a very particular one uh, that people who've watched my channel probably know. Yes. <laughs> she doesn't have like a particular name other than just Magical Erin, but she is basically my, my avatar on YouTube and online. Mm -hmm. It's basically me, but with a, a mashup of like some elements of various Magical Girl costumes that I've enjoyed over the years. So like the like... Sailor Moon style, like big thick feather sleeves and uh, Cardcaptor Sakura style, like beret hat and Utena style, like uniform jacket and big puffy skirt that's just generally very magical girl. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it also incorporates some elements of an older avatar of mine. A long time ago, my avatar was just. I was fresh out of my film degree and had illusions that I was going to make my channel about film. And mm. so I made my avatar a stereotypical, like, snooty film critic looking person. Like, <laughs> that's also partly where the French beret came from. Oh. And my avatar had this, like, little mustache for that reason, too. Mm -hmm. oh. And when I made my magical girl avatar, I brought forward those elements, the beret and the mustache. <laughs> So that's why my avatar has a mustache. Okay, interesting. That makes sense now that I have that context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, also because, like, I have some pattern, like, facial hair that I do keep shaved, but I also wanted to give a nod to that in my avatar as well. Hmm. Okay, great. So thank you again for coming on the podcast to talk about Mago. So where can people find you online to talk to you about this or other stuff? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Erin uh, Cerise. Uh, that's E-R-Y-N-C-E-R-I-S-E. -E. You can find my YouTube at the same name, youtube.com slash Erin Cerise. You can watch all the Maho profile videos there. You can listen to Super Idols RPG there. There's various other places around the web that I've been throughout my lives, but that's <laughs> the main places that I'm active at the moment. Great. Yeah, thank you again, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Was that to the podcast listeners or to me? Should that I be was, responding? Oh, that was to you. <laughs> oh, I thought that was just the end of the line. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Just I hope you have a good rest of your day. Yeah. <laughs> you too. Hey. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you like it, and don't forget to tell your friends about the show if you think they'd be interested. If you use social media, don't forget to use the hashtag SparkleSideChats when talking about and sharing the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MagicalGirlAyu, spelled A-Y-U, and you can find me at Ayushinos. A-Y-U-S-H-E-K-N-O-W-S. You can also email us at sparklesidechats at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a topic you want covered or a fan or creator you want to hear from by filling out the form in the show notes. Show notes can be found on your platform of choice or at anchor.fm slash sparkleside. You can also join the Discord for this podcast to talk about Magical Girls 24-7, often chatting directly with me and both previous and upcoming guests of the podcast. You can find a public link to the Discord after each episode is released, or if it's not working anymore, feel free to DM. If you can support the podcast financially, you can find me a coffee at co-fee.com slash ayushinos. 
With Ko-fi membership, you can get bonus content, announcements about episode topics, and your name read aloud on the podcast. Another way to support us one time is by buying something off of the Amazon Japan wishlist. This helps with getting more access to Magical Girl content that we can discuss in future episodes. Feel free to purchase from the used section as we are not picky here. Original podcast music is by Hazel. You can find her on Twitter at a few bruises. Thanks again for listening and remember, you are magical. Thank you.